If you'll take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the exciting book of 1 Samuel, particularly chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14. There are 52 verses in this chapter. We shall do half of them. Better men can do more. We shall do half. (laughs) About 200 years ago, William Carey died on an old green couch after spending his life in service to the Lord. William Carey was born in England in 1761, and by the age of 14, he was apprenticing to be a cobbler. During this time, William or Carey discovered that he had quite a passion for languages. And before he was out of his 20s, he had taught himself Greek, Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, and French. Carey soon became a Baptist pastor, and like most pastors, he began to read. And after reading The Life and the Diary of David Brainerd, a book that tremendously shaped my life, uh, edited by Jonathan Edwards, and by, after reading the journals of a modern-day explorer, God gave William Carey a burning desire to take the gospel to all the nations, particularly to those who had not heard. And so William Carey took the gospel to the unreached peoples, of India. William Carey was not just an adventure seeker. He was zealous for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. And so he gave his life as a missionary for the sake of the kingdom. And with God's help, he accomplished incredibly great things for God. Some of the highlights of his life's work include the following. Carey translated the entire Bible into all six of India's main languages. Six. How many times have you read the Bible all the way through? Okay. He, he then translated portions of the Bible into 209 other languages and dialects. William Carey was horrified in India to see some of the pagan, pact, uh, pagan practices. They burned widows. They practiced assisted suicide. And so he was influential in social reform that, that worked to abolish some of these practices. Carey founded a divinity school for, for Indians and was instrumental in leading scores to Christ. But perhaps the thing that William Carey is most remembered for, perhaps the thing that God used him for more than anything else, was to inspire a massive worldwide missionary movement that has completely reshaped the way the world works. Men like Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, inspired by, by Carey's story, left and took the gospel and along with countless unnamed other folks. He's known as the father of modern missions. In 1792, William Carey preached a sermon, and its title has been long remembered as a description of William Carey's life. The title was this, Attempt Great Things for God and Expect Great Things from God. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Now, you may be no William Carey, but let me ask you this. What sort of holy passions burn inside you? What was the last great thing that you attempted for God? What's the last, when's the last time that you risked anything to advance God's glory? Can you think about it? 
The text before us tonight here in 1 Samuel 14 is an exciting text where we see Jonathan do just that. Attempt great things for God. And he doesn't do it for just any reason. He does it because he knows that God can do great things. The main idea that we're going to see tonight in this, ch- in this chapter is that God can do great things with very meager resources. God can act entirely on his own, and sometimes he does, but he loves to use his people, especially those who are acting out of radical faith and with great zeal for his glory. Now, before I read our text, let's briefly remember where we've come from. In in chapter 13, we see God rejecting King Saul. And it's not just Saul, but it's his entire family line. So Jonathan has been rejected from being king, future king. And this took place after Saul disobeyed the Lord by making an unlawful sacrifice back in chapter 13. And so instead of using King Saul's family... To bless Israel, God has announced that He's going to raise up a man, what? After His own heart. In other words, one who will obey Him wholeheartedly. And even though God's going to continue to use Saul for a time, He's going to use him to take care of His people and to to further establish Israel, both God and Samuel have abandoned King Saul. They've abandoned him. And they've left him to his own devices. So, with that being said, let's look down at 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ithub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know what Jonathan, that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinah. The one crag rose from the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. 
And after that first strike, which Jonathan killed his, and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there's a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah at Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against its fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle pressed behind, behind, beyond Beth-haven. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that it is a gift, and we recognize that all of it is valuable, even the things that don't seem immediately applicable to us. And Father, we know that we have your spirit who illuminates your word to us. So tonight, we're asking for the work of the spirit. Work among us. Open our eyes to see your word and to see what is true and to see you. I pray, Father, that tonight my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten, that no praise would come to me, Father, because you alone deserve glory. And so let your word remain. And let it bear fruit in our hearts so that all will see that you are God. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, in chapter 13, just recently, we were introduced to King Saul's son, Jonathan. And it doesn't take much to realize that Jonathan is nothing like his father, and that's really one of the keys to understanding not only this text, but a lot of Old Testament narrative, is the way that the author uses comparison and contrasting to, to make a point. The author is going out of his way to, to show how different Saul and Jonathan are. And even though Saul is, is the one that is appointed to, to demonstrate confidence in the Lord and to lead the people to fight Israel's battles, who is it that's doing that? Jonathan, not, not Saul. He did it in chapter 13, and he's doing it again here in 14. So Jonathan and Saul are placed side by side to, to show us the different outcomes. One is the outcome of faith, and the other is the outcome of unbelief. This contrast comparison technique begins right away. The story, the story opens up with the Philistines who are encamped at the top of a, of a ragged ravine. You can see this down uh, in, in verses 1 and in 2. And we have Saul and his men who are, who are nearby in a pomegranate cave. Not exactly a bold position. You can't win wars hiding in caves, generally. Especially pomegranate caves. That sounds so fruity. 
But the boldness is not one of Saul's strong suits. We don't see him being bold very often, even though he's tall and even though this is the king to to fight Israel's battles. Once again, Saul is unwilling and and afraid to take the military initiative. But maybe you also notice who's with King Saul. Look down in verse 3. Ahijah. Okay, what's that mean? We don't know until we keep reading. Oh, he's the son of Phineas. You remember Phineas? The wicked priest, Ichabod's brother, right? Do you remember Ichabod? The glory has departed. Where God pronounced that he's leaving these priests because of their sin. So just think about this for a second, right? Remember, here's King Saul, whose dynasty has been rejected by God. And what's he doing? He's being assisted by a priest whose lineage has been rejected by God. This is not a good situation, right? And also think about this. Where's Samuel? Samuel is the one who represents the voice of the Lord. And where is Samuel in this chapter? He's gone. This is not looking good. The author gives us quite a bit of detail about things that you might not expect to be important, but I've learned in reading the Bible that God does not waste words. And so there's lots of important things that are here, even more than we can talk about tonight. But we get some detail about the terrain, right? There are two rocky crags, Bozes and Sinia. Do you know what those words mean? Slippery and thorny. Sounds like my yard, right? Slippery and thorny. So it seems that that both of these armies are at a standstill uh, across from each other, and there's extreme terrain, and so neither side is taking action. Except for Jonathan, right? Except for Jonathan. Verse 1 shows a restless Jonathan who is not content to sit around in pomegranate caves, right? So Jonathan develops a secret plan with only his armor bearer, and he decides to go on a little little commando raid against the Philistines. They've got to make a movie out of this, right? This would be an, a great, a great movie. And he says the best line, and what I think is the most important line, and it's the key to understanding this chapter, back down in verse 6. So Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So right away, right from the start, we can go ahead and start making some application from this text. The first thing I'd like to draw your attention to is this. Radical faith leads to radical kingdom endeavors. In other words, radical faith leads us to attempt great things for God. Great faith in God leads to great attempts for God. Once again, we see Saul sitting around afraid, waiting for something to happen. But then we see Jonathan full of boldness and confidence in the Lord, and he is ready to take action. Saul is sitting, and Jonathan is acting. Saul's sword is put up, and Jonathan's sword is pulled out. And of course, make sure that you notice the source of what he is doing in verse 6, you know, that it, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 
Jonathan did not care about the slippery, thorny hills, right? He was not concerned about that. He was not intimidated by a Philistine garrison. He was not even afraid to go alone. I saw one translator uh, who, or one scholar who was translating this, this here in verse 6. It's like the, the language is like, who knows what God will do? Like, who knows? He's going to do something cool. He might, who knows what he'll do, right? You see, faith in God will always be characterized by activity. You remember this from James, right? You can't just be a hearer of the word. You got to do, you got to do it, right? Faith in God will always be characterized in doing. You can tell about your faith in God based on your actions and your obedience. And fear and unbelief, they paralyze. They lead to inactivity. You and I will not attempt great things for God if we don't expect great things from God. Bottom line. We won't attempt. Let me just go ahead and tell you. My prayer for this, for this message tonight is that God would inspire our hearts to dream big things for him. That he would lay on our hearts. We are all gifted in different ways together. And I'm praying that God will stir. That he'll start stirring in some of our hearts to get more involved in the work of his kingdom. So that's what I've been praying. I don't know what he's going to do. I can't control that. So, so we'll keep going with his, his word. We won't attempt great things for God if we don't expect great things from him. But notice in this text specifically how Jonathan's faith and confidence is in, is in God. And it gave him the desire to do something good. All right? He had confidence in God, and that propelled him forward. And that's how it should be with us. As as we consider God in his ways, the more we get to know him, the more we consider his power, the more we consider his might, the more we consider his character, we will find in us a great desire to do something for him. If you don't have that desire, it may just be a flickering flame. It might be so small. If you don't have the desire, something is broken, right? Love for God propels us to do things for him. Not because he needs us, but because we want to work with him. It's not because he needs our help, but it's because we're confident that we have his help. And if we have his help, what's possible? Anything, right? Anything. Deeply rooted faith in God will produce holy ambition. It will produce sanctified audacity that gives us the desire to attempt great things for the Lord. Deeply rooted faith will spur us into difficult ministry situations. Situations that seem beyond our ability, beyond our comfort, It's going to lead us to pray bigger, more audacious prayers. Praying for things that are bigger than we ever dreamed of. Faith like this will cause us to dream up bold ways to glorify the Lord. When's the last time that you prayerfully dreamed up a way to give give God glory? Right? I mean, look what Jonathan did, right? It, it, it should encourage us. So many of us live our lives. We live the Christian life like we're floating in an inner tube down the lazy river, right? Have you seen those? Just go in circles, right? No danger at all, right? We're just content to go wherever the current takes us. There's no risk, there's little danger, and there's little reward. 
But audacious faith gives us a gritty purpose and it causes us to go grab a paddle and run out into the ocean, right? I want to do something. I want to go somewhere. I want to do something for the glory of God. This sort of confident faith should drive the missional strategies of our lives. What's the mission statement for your life? What are you living for? This sort of boldness should be what drives us. I think this is the kind of ambition that Paul felt in Romans 15. You remember he says, I make it my ambition to, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. I don't want to go where there's already believers. I want to go into the frontier. I want to go where it's hard, lest I build on someone else's foundation. I've been praying that, that tonight, my heart's been encouraged by this, that, that because of this text, God would lead us to dream big dreams and then go out and see what we can do for the Lord. Not because we think we're great, because we're convinced, in God, we're convinced of God's greatness and His power. Who knows, who knows what Yahweh might do? That's an exciting thought, isn't it? It's a little scary, but it's exciting. Bold faith is active. Bold faith does not just sit around waiting for opportunities to come its way. So often that's what our ministry is like. We just kind of wait. We wait to be asked to serve. Bold faith climbs the hill, right? Serving in the nursery is not as hard as climbing slippery and thorny crags. You may disagree, but I promise it's not not as hard, right? Who knows what an omnipotent God may be delighted to do against these uncircumcised Philistines. Jonathan's commando raid, right? This this famous deed that resulted in such a great victory for God's people. It all began with what? A simple desire to do something great for the Lord and for his people. What are you desiring to do for the Lord? Pray about it. Dream. Dream a little. The second thing we see in this text is that radical faith sees God's ability, not circumstances. Radical faith sees and focuses on God's ability, not circumstances. Jonathan was staring down a whole army with him and a buddy, right? Two guys against a whole garrison. The terrain was so difficult, I think the reason that the author included some geography here, some landscape, is to say that it was so difficult, some people interpreted it to say that it was impassable, right? You couldn't couldn't get through it. If you notice, look down at verse 13, Jonathan had to crawl up on all fours, right? He included that. The Bible is real. Who else would include details like that, right? And it also included that the enemy was so unthreatened by him that they mocked him, right? They, they were like, they didn't even, pay. they said, sure, come on up. And then they like ignored him, right? They went back to their beer and poker, right? And, and then Jonathan and his buddy, they come, crawl, they come crawling up. Yet in verse 6, again, we see Jonathan's logic for what otherwise would be taken as a fool's errand, right? I would not advise this and under any scenario, <laughs> It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. Friends, this is the heart of faith. This is the heart of faith. Where the eyes of man see obstacles, the eyes of faith see opportunity. 
Where the eyes of man see the Red Sea, the eyes of faith can see a dry path. Where the eyes of man see injustice and betrayal and imprisonment, the eyes of faith see a rescue for a whole nation with Joseph. Where the eyes of faith see 5,000 starving, hungry men, the eyes of faith see five loaves and two fish. Where the eyes of man see the apostle in prison, the eyes of faith see an opportunity to win the guards to Christ. Where the eyes of man see a cross, the eyes of faith see victory of an empty tomb. When we face a circumstance that seems difficult or even impossible, how about we start dreaming with a smile? How about we start wondering, how is the Lord going to work in this situation? My wife reminds me of this all the time. I'm overwhelmed. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get all this done. And she's like, hey, God's just setting the stage, right? How's God going to work? How's he going to get you out of this? What's he going to do? Where the eyes of man see habitual sin and crushing grief and what feels like a hopeless marriage, the eyes of faith look to the Lord expectantly. What's he going to do? Where the eyes of man see obstacles, the eyes of faith see an opportunity for the Lord. But we tend to do the opposite, don't we? I, I certainly do. I'm much more like Peter. Right? I, I get out of the boat and then I look around at the wind and the waves and I completely forget that the one who is standing right there controls the wind and the waves. And I sink. Or like the disciples in the boat, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? I was encouraged this weekend. Do you remember when God called Moses to Pharaoh to go do a completely impossible task? Right? That's got to be one of the most impossible tasks in the Bible. And Moses started listing out all the reasons that it wasn't going to work. Right? Pharaoh's not going to listen. Our people aren't going to believe me. I'm not eloquent. What did God say? <laughs> Right? He's like, he gives them signs. He says, I am the Lord. <laughs> and then he, he says, oh, you're not eloquent? Who made your mouth? That's right. <laughs> Who made the man's mouth? Who makes him mute? Who makes him deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? When the Lord places you in circumstances that seem totally overwhelming and totally impossible, don't focus on your circumstances. Focus on God's ability. Don't focus on your circumstances. Focus on God's ability. Don't look at the wind and the waves. Look at the one who controls the wind and the waves. And then put one foot in front of the other and obey. I was meditating on this. We could apply this in a lot of different ways. But one application I specifically thought of was, think about how this would revolutionize your prayer life. If we got this truth down, right? If we weren't so focused on our circumstances, but we're so focused on God's power. Think about your, t your day. How much of your brain power did you spend thinking about the circumstances of your life? And how much of your brain power did you think about s focusing on God's power? Right? Think about your life. Think about those numbers. If we got this truth we pray so differently. What if in every swampy circumstance, instead of self-reliance, which only leads to anxiety and despair, what if we ran to the Lord in prayer? Expect
expecting him to act? What if we ran to him, fully convinced that if, that if, he, that if he doesn't depend on our resources at all, he doesn't need anything about our circumstances, he can completely accomplish his victory. God has resources you can't even dream of. Tell me about your problems. God's got resources we can't even dream of, right? I love reading the book of Job where God, God goes through and starts bragging about all his weapons, right? I got storehouses of hail. What you got, Job? Right? It just reminds us of his, of his resources. What if we ran to the Lord and expected him in his own time to take our mess and make something out of it? He is the God who brings beauty from ashes. He is the God who magnifies his strength in our weaknesses. So often, we just flat out forget to factor in the power of God into the equation. It's never going to work without the power of God. We tend to find some pomegranate cave and sit back and do whatever you do in pomegranate caves. I don't know, make smoothies or something. I don't know. We, we fret and we worry. We focus on, this is what I do. I, I, I focus so much about, I take the problem and then I take my resources and I think, uh-oh, I need a few more resources, right? The problem's a little bit bigger than I think I can handle, okay? I need to read more or study more, right? And, and I focus on the, my problems instead of crying out to the Lord, but God calls us to take our weaknesses, to take our impossibilities to him. Oh, I pray that this text would compel us to pray. Pray your problems. I pray that it would encourage us to storm the thorny and slippery crags of our lives with prayer. We must look to God's ability, not only to our own circumstances. Number three, Radical faith acts to build the kingdom of God. Radical faith is only concerned about building the kingdom of God. Now, tonight I have been suggesting that this text teaches us that faith in God actually compels us to take risks. That's a word I want you to leave with, risk-taking. Right? That's, that's what we're doing, talking about taking risks for God's glory. Just try to, I've been trying to envision this today. What it would be like to take one buddy and to go attack an entire army. Right? I'm trying to think about what that would take and what's going on. And the more I've been reading through this, the more it amazes me. Right? Keep, that in, keep that in your mind. God is compelling us. Faith in him compels us to take risks. But I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that you should conclude from this text that you should go skydiving for the glory of God, right? That is not the application I'm seeking to make. Thrill-seeking risks are generally self-seeking, right? I'm talking about risks for the kingdom. I'm talking about risks for the work of the ministry. I'm talking about risky love. So let's take a look at several components of how Jonathan took risks. Several components of Jonathan's risk-taking faith. And I, I hope this is very practical. I don't have time to apply all this. So you take it and you apply it. Uh, we'll, we'll do some. The first thing to notice about Jonathan's risk-taking is that his risk-taking had kingdom motives. Had kingdom motives. Jonathan was not seeking glory for himself, right? Right? 
you got to notice that there's a lot of little clues in the text that show us that. He was concerned with the good of Israel and the glory of God. God had called Israel, remember, God had called Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land and, and even to bring judgment on the Philistines. And if you look in verses 6 and 7, right, again, we see Jonathan had, he had kingdom motives. Guys, we've got to keep a close eye on our motives. They go awry so fast. Our faith should drive us to attempt difficult things for God, right? Not for self. I'm not encouraging you to take radical risk-taking in your personal life for your glory. That's probably not going not to go well. Our faith should drive us to attempt difficult things for God. Not money, not advancement, not glory. Think evangelism, not business ventures, right? Think evangelism. Think about evangelism. It feels, evangelism feels so risky. There are times where I'm pretty sure I would rather climb a thorny mountain and get beat up by some army than try to share my faith, right? Do you know that feeling? Y'all are looking at me like, oh, I don't know, pastor. I I got no issues with this. Whatever. (laughs) Evangelism feels so risky. But imagine how your boldness would be fueled if you paused and you called to mind the incredible power of God. What if you stopped and thought, okay, Lord, I'm really scared right now, but I recognize that as I open my mouth to speak and share the gospel, I'm knocking on the door of hell, right? This is spiritual warfare. It gives you perspective of what God can do. I think a rule of thumb is the greater the cause, the greater the risk. There is no risk too high to take the gospel to the nations. Millions and millions of Christians have died doing that. And it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. The greater the, greater the cause, the greater the risk. So risk for God's glory, not your own. It's a failed project. Second thing, Jonathan made himself available. Jonathan's faith was so strong that he was not only willing to take a dangerous risk for the glory of God, right? That's, that's one thing, and that's great, right? If risk comes to you and you take the opportunity, he didn't just do that. He went and found it, right? He went and found himself a crisis, right? That, whenever I do that, it's because I've been stupid, not because I'm like being faithful usually, right? He found himself a crisis. He dreamed it up. He found an opportunity for the kingdom that barely existed. But that's how God's power works. That's what bold faith does. Not only does it look past the rocky crags and the frightening circumstances to the God of our circumstances, but it even seeks out difficult circumstances. Church, put yourself in difficult positions to serve the Lord. Put yourselves in difficult positions. We need to be on the lookout for ministry opportunities. We need to be on the lookout for ways to love radically, to risk by giving sacrificially. We need to recognize that every single opportunity we have to confess our sin, I mean, which feels so vulnerable, every time you confess your sin, you have a chance to proclaim the gospel. We've been talking about this in our marriage. When I confess my failures to my wife, I'm saying, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. Every, every time. 
We need to be a look, on the lookout for opportunities to bring God to glory. Glory to God. Number three, Jonathan was willing to put himself in danger. That's really the definition of risk. I think John Piper, I think I got this from him, this definition. Any, risk is any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. That's what risk is, right? Any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. When Jonathan said in verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Well, what does that mean? Well, it may not be <laughs> that the Lord will, will work for them. Then one of the possibilities is that if it doesn't work, well, he's going to die, maybe, right? How many times do you find yourself in a position where loving someone the way the scriptures teach you to love makes you so vulnerable? Have you had those experiences in your relationships? Where loving someone the way God's called you to love makes you feel so vulnerable. Jonathan was willing to put himself in danger for the glory of God. Jesus teaches us to do this. We're called to forgive how many times? 70 times 7, right? The picture is continually. Constant exposure. Forgiveness is constant exposure to the mistreatment of other people. That's what love does. It takes risks for the good of other people. Jonathan's trust was in the Lord. And since he trusted in the Lord, he was willing to put himself in danger for the sake of, his, of the kingdom. Number four, Jonathan had humble imagination. Humble imagination. I kind of like that phrase. I think I stole it. I don't remember. We could call it humble ignorance. Maybe that's the phrase I stole. Humble ignorance. Jonathan is not making any claims to know what God is doing, right? He is not claiming God will let me conquer the Philistines. He was not doing that, right? You notice that he was humble. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan was not acting or manipulating God. He wasn't forcing God's hand. He was humbly submitted to the will of God, even with his life. Because of faith, Jonathan was so convinced of the character of God, he was willing to entrust himself into his hand. Jonathan was not making demands of God. He was offering himself as a sacrifice. Risk is by very definition, it means that we're not sure of the outcome, right? And just, so, we could talk about this so much more, but just so you know, we need to get over the fact that we're in control of our lives. We need to get over the fact that we can be safe, right? All that is illusion. You remember James, <laughs> right? You, you think you know what you're going to do tomorrow, but you should say if it's God's will, right, that you'll do such and such. All these things are an illusion. We submit ourselves to the Lord. Paul risked his life to spread the gospel across Asia. And many times God blessed him. Many times God delivered him. But other times he was beaten with rods. Other times he was imprisoned. Other times he was stoned and left for dead. And eventually he was killed. God makes no guarantees for your immediate safety. He's much more concerned with your permanent safety. You may risk and get laughed at. You may get slandered. You may be taken advantage of. You might be killed. God promises ultimate safety and ultimate justice. Number five on risk-taking. You don't have to leave your brain at the door. You don't have to leave your brain at the door. You can use some savvy. 
It appears that Jonathan used military tactics to draw the Philistines into this rocky pass where it would be easier to attack them. All right? And that's in verses 8, 9, and 10, I, I believe. Risky faith does not mean being stupid, right? I see so many Christians doing stupid things and pretending like they have faith when they're just not planning or they're not thinking, right? We need to be wise. Use the principles of wisdom. Proverbs are full of them. Ask trusted counselors. Use your brain. As Oliver Cromwell told his soldiers, put your trust in God, my boys, but mind to keep your powder dry. Keep your powder dry. Number six, you may triumph. You may triumph. Remember as finite creatures that you and I live in humble submission to God. It may not always go well, but many times it will. Many times that we will get to see God triumph through our faith. It may not, and actually probably often will not be in the manner we expect or in the timing that we prefer. But we will often be given the privilege to sit on the front row as we see God working through our faith. God is pleased to bless bold faith. So act. Jonathan's confidence in the Lord led him to bold action that God blessed and used to deliver Israel. Verses 13 through 23, we read about how God used Jonathan's courageous faith to kill 20 Philistines, right? It's actually, it reads like a graphic war movie. If your kids think the Bible is boring, take them to this verse, right? The picture is Jonathan is crawling up this thorny, slippery crag. And once he gets up to the top, he starts knocking guys down, but he doesn't kill them totally. So his armor bearer finishes them off and he's just going down the line, leaving guys in awake. And the, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a scene out of a war movie. But this, was, this wasn't just a skirmish. Jonathan may have cooperated with God in this initial attack, but the picture in the text is God took it over from here. Right? Jonathan may have gotten it started, but the Lord took it over, which brings us to the last point. Radical faith is a tool for God's glory. Radical faith is a tool for God's glory. You want to give glory to God? I hope you do. Then faith, have faith. Trust in Him. Beginning with Jonathan's initiative, God just started showing off. I hope I wanted to do that in my life so much. With the attack of just two Israelites, God threw the whole army into panic. I hope you remember that. This text emphasizes the language uses a lot of words like for panic and confusion. And just for good measure, God threw in an earthquake. <laughs> I wish I could do that. <laughs> Verse 15, he threw in an earthquake. But where's Saul in all this, right? Where's Saul? He's in the pomegranate cave. Perfuming or something, I don't know. Verse 16, his watchmen tell him about the panic that is going on, but Saul doesn't know what's going on. So he has a head count done. Apparently his sentries aren't very good at keeping tabs on folks. And he discovers that Jonathan and his armor bearer have, have snuck off. Verses 16 through 22, I read them a lot and they're really funny to me because they give you this picture of just Saul just fumbling around trying to figure out what, what to do. He, 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 he's being, so, remember Jonathan is the decisive one in the text, faithful and decisive and Saul is, is timid and incompetent and uncertain. 
In verses 18 and 19, Saul starts to, to he, gets, he gets up with his defunct priests and they try to handle the ark of the Lord. But you remember what happened recently? Saul didn't do this very well and it got him in big trouble. So he's not really sure how to do it right. And eventually it's not working because remember God's rejected him. And so he just gives up and goes on anyway, right? Like, gosh, trouble, trouble is ahead for Saul. The Lord has left him. And so Saul gives up and he joins the battle anyway. But it's clear that Saul isn't the hero. He may get victory, he may get credit for victory on paper, but he wasn't the hero. And neither was Jonathan. God's the hero. Verse 19, he is the one who caused the confusion to be so great that the Philistines were killing each other. God doesn't even need the Israelite army to kill off an army. Don't get over that. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me at all, right? He can accomplish his purposes with the mouth of a donkey. He doesn't need you, right? He can use rocks to accomplish his purposes. God didn't need Israel. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He is completely self-sufficient, and I'm so glad. This leads the writer of Samuel to conclude in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel on that day. Jonathan doesn't get the glory. Not even for his bold faith. But Jonathan didn't care. That's why he said again in verse 6, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. At this point, I can't help but think of the cross of Calvary. Where with a crown of thorns pressed into his head, we see Christ climbing a slippery and thorny crag where he won a great victory for all of God's people. Alone. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, not some defunct pervert like the guys we see in Samuel. Our eternal king, not like Saul, tall, handsome, and and cowardice. A victor. He risked everything and obeyed perfectly that you and I might be safe in him. But the victory of Calvary is only available to those who unite themselves to to Christ in faith. And though the cross looked like an end for Jesus, though it looked totally hopeless, though it looked totally dismal, I mean, how could an instrument of evil and torture be used for good? But God used it to be for the greatest good in the history of the world. The cross reminds us that God can accomplish great things through the obedience of one humble servant. I like how John Knox said it. I think he said it best. One man with God is always in the majority. I want to be found in Christ. I hope that's true for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory that has been won on our behalf. We don't have to fight. We sit back and get the victory. But Father, that means you get the glory. So we give you all the glory tonight. I pray, Lord, that you would build our faith. That we would trust you to take risks for the sake of your kingdom. That we would love difficult people. That we would sacrifice uh, and give in ways that hurt that we would be willing to share your gospel with boldness, that we would move towards broken, hurting people who may hurt us in response. Lord, give us faith to do these things and then take all the glory that's yours. We ask this in your name. Amen.